Let's open up in our Bibles now to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, as we're going there, we do want to remember that we are one church in three locations and that our Ventura campus will be seeing this message. So let's let them know we love them and we're with them. Also, as you're opening up to Ephesians chapter 5, I want to make you aware of something. Uh, one of the things that God has been doing in my life over the last year and in the life of my family as we went through losing Daisy, so on and so forth, is teaching us to live in a way that's more present and an endeavor to be more faithful to where we are and with who God has put us with. So there's lots of ways that that's playing out in our lives. Uh, One of the ways for me is that I don't have an iPhone. I have just an old flip phone. I can't get text messages. I don't go online on my phone. Um, Just as an effort to be present wherever I am, with who I'm with, to enjoy them and enjoy Jesus in that moment. Uh, We don't have internet at our house as a way to just be more present to one another and present to God. So there's all sorts of ways that we're trying to do that. And one of the ways that we're trying to do that is to be more present for me in my pastoring and my preaching for the church that I'm called to pastor and preach. So in light of that, we're only going to make my sermons available online to those who attend the church regularly. So the rationale is when I'm preaching to you guys, I don't want to be thinking about the rest of the world. And I have a, I have a tendency to do that. Okay, that's why I have to be really self-disciplined to be present because I have a tendency to be easily distracted and start to think about everything else. And especially with the preaching, and we've had a lot of people that have tuned in from all over the world over the years, and I find myself preaching, thinking about them. But I'm not called to think about them right now. I'm called to think about you guys and our lives together as reality here in the coastlands. So for me to do that, I want to be present only to you in my sermons. So... Um, Nobody else can go online and get them, only those who attend the church regularly. So if you go to the website, there'll be a code that you enter, which should be on the screen now. And that code is RC03RC09. There it is, RC03RV, excuse me. RC, as in Reality Carpinteria. 03, as in 2003 when we started the church. RV, as in Reality Ventura. And 09, as in when we started that campus. So you'll be able to get uh, all the current messages by entering that code. And we trust you guys not to share that code with those that don't go to the church. And if they're wondering why, there's a fuller explanation of this on the website, uh, right where you would log in. There's a letter that I've written to everyone else. So we hope that that finds approval with you guys. And please bear with me as I endeavor to be obedient to Christ's call to be present and all about what I'm doing. Amen? Amen. Okay, Ephesians chapter 5. We have come to a challenging portion of scripture here. It's very, very important. Okay, so we're going to take our time to deal with the scripture today. We're going to be talking about husbands and wives. Spirit-filled marriage is the title of the message. We'll be looking at Ephesians 5, verses 22 through 30. I just want to warn you, dear brothers and sisters now, that it's going to take some time to work through and deal faithfully with this text. So we're going to be here for a while, okay? It's going to take at least an hour to preach through this text. I want to warn you of that because some of you simply cannot deal with that. I understand that. I I, I get that. Better to leave now than later on because when you leave later on, you distract about 500 other people. 
So, um, but if you, if you can't deal with an hour sermon, you should probably ask yourself why you can watch three hours of the Lord of the Rings without problem, but can't bear one hour of God's word. Now I know my preaching is not as fun as the Lord of the Rings, but it's not meant to be, but the word of God is infinitely more important than any long movie. So we're just going to be Christians now. Okay. We're going to be disciplined and we're going to, we're going to give ourselves to it. Okay. We're going to tune our hearts and our minds in for about an hour to give ourselves to the word of God. Okay. We're going to survive. You're going to be okay. Okay. Let's read the text and pray. Ephesians 5, starting in verse 22. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. And husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church because we are members of his body. Let's pray. Lord, the weight of this text sits before us. We can feel it upon us. Everything in our selfishness would fight against what it really means if we're to understand it. And the vast majority of our culture would fight against what it means, if they really understand it. But we thank you for your word. It's greater than the sinfulness of our flesh. It's greater than the spirit of our culture. It's your eternal, true word. We say together that we believe it. And we ask that by grace you give us faith for the areas where it's difficult to believe and difficult to receive and difficult for, to obey. We ask for grace in those areas of our lives. And we feel not only the weight of this text because it's so counter to our flesh and our culture, but we feel the weight of it because what is at stake? Our marriages, Lord. Jesus, you said what God has put together, let no man tear asunder. And yet it seems that every man is trying to tear asunder marriage in our country. We simply believe that your word shows us a way, that God, your way is the best way. And we need faith and grace and power from the Holy Spirit to hear these things, to believe these things and to obey these things. So give us ears to hear and give us humble hearts. It's going to be a challenging message for husbands and for wives and those who will someday be those. Please, Lord, help me to teach and preach in a way that honors the person of Jesus Christ, is honest to your word, fearless before men, but compassionate with my brothers and sisters. Please anoint me for your glory and your purposes and your fame and not for any other reason. 
and do a good work in the church that our marriages might bring glory to you and reflect your love for us and our love for you. We ask these things in the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Okay, well, that passage that we just read and the passages that follow, going through chapter 6, verse 9, are connected to the verse that we took the time to study last week. Verse 21 which tells us to be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. We took time to talk about the concept of mutual submission. And we learned last week that all of us, all of us as Christians are called to submit to one another. And the way that we do that is by considering others to be more important than ourselves. And by looking out for the needs of one another and not merely for our own interests. Okay, that's the backdrop for what's to come next and what is in the passage that we just read. And so the passage that we just read and the following verses then are case studies of what mutual submission looks like. There's specific examples of how this works out in what is most people's most familiar context, the home. This passage, Ephesians 5.22 through 6.9, is often called the household codes by Bible scholars because it deals with the relationships within a household. Husbands and wives, parents and children coming up in chapter 6, and slaves and masters, as was common in the household at that time, and we'll deal with that when we get to it. Now, when we think about husbands and wives and mutual submission in the passage that we just read, if you were to consider, as many have, this context, or excuse me, this passage out of context, it can be seen to be giving husbands license to oppress their wives. It could be seen as pressing upon women the place of a doormat. It could be cause for women to be resentful and bitter in their hearts toward husbands. And out of context, it seems arbitrary and unfair and has drawn much scorn from within the church and certainly from without the church. But we must realize that there is a context to the scripture. And in context, Paul is talking about what it means to live in a manner worthy of the calling with which we have been called. What God has done in our lives in Christ. And he's talking about what it looks like to live in a way that is wise and full of light in a world that is perverse and full of darkness. In context, Paul is instructing us in what it means to be faithful, walk in a manner worthy, and fruitful, living as wise as lights in a dark world. And the command that addresses both of these, being faithful and fruitful, is found in verse 18, where it tells us to be continually being filled with the Holy Spirit. Okay, we talked about that at length this summer. And without being filled with the Holy Spirit, we cannot possibly live faithful or fruitful Christian lives. So he exhorts us to be continually being filled with the Holy Spirit. That's something that is to happen repeatedly and often in the life of the Christian. We talked about that this summer. 
And that that takes place through surrender and petition. We yield our lives to what the Spirit wants to do, and we ask Him to fill our lives with His presence and His power. And now then, in context, we are given a couple of examples of what the Spirit-filled life ought to look like. In verses 19 and 20, we learn that the Spirit-filled life looks like exalting Christ in the midst of the gathered church. There it says we're to be speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with our hearts to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, even to the Father. That is the vertical dimension of the Spirit-filled life. It exalts Christ. It turns the attention and adoration and affections toward the person of Jesus. The vertical dimension of the Spirit-filled life. Verses 19 and 20. And then in verse 21, we are given the horizontal dimension of the spirit-filled life. Be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. What does it look like to have a spirit-filled life? It exalts Christ. It's vertically oriented and it submits to, esteems as more important, one another. It's horizontally fruitful and faithful. And those two concepts parallel the two greatest commandments right? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The first and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So the explanation of the spirit-filled life in Ephesians 5 parallels the two greatest commandments, realizing the fact that we cannot possibly fulfill God's commands without God's power, which is provided in the person of the Holy Spirit. Remember then, that the person of the Holy Spirit is the power given to the Christian for faithful and fruitful living. Jesus said in Acts chapter 1, you shall receive power to be my witnesses when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Now here's where this gets interesting. In the horizontal realm. It is interesting how the power of the Holy Spirit is manifest in our relationships with one another. The power of the Holy Spirit is manifest in our relationships by lowering self and exalting other. Lowering self and exalting other is the way that the power of the Holy Spirit works in the lives of the Christian. An old French Christian who died at the beginning of the 1900s said this, never think that in lowering yourself, you have less power for God. Never think that in lowering yourself, you have less power for God. The Holy Spirit is a power of God for faithful and fruitful living. We experience the power of God working in our lives horizontally by the lowering of ourselves. And we're never to think that that means we have less power. But that is exactly what the world thinks. The world thinks that the way to be powerful is to promote self and dominate others. Right? But Christ, the gospel, and scripture teach us that true power is through self-demotion and other promotion. That true power is through submission and deference. Now, that is counterintuitive and countercultural. That is subversive to the way of this world. But if the world were to stop and think about it for a moment... It rings true. It bears out in history. Think. Who comes to be celebrated 
decades later as we look back on history? Is it the one who dominated or is it the one who served? Who comes to be celebrated? Who is truly powerful? Was it Hitler or was it Mother Teresa? Who is truly powerful? Jesus said of himself, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So we begin to see that we must be prepared for spirit-filled living to be counterintuitive, countercultural, and unpopular. We must be prepared for it to be self-effacing and to go the way of the cross, self-denial in every aspect of our lives and especially in our relationships and especially in our most important relationships. We must realize that Christ-oriented, spirit-led mutual submission is given to us by God for our growth and sanctification. God's will for us includes freely submitting to each other out of love and reverence for Christ. It's one of the ways, listen to me now, it is one of the ways that God helps us to be free of a controlling, rebellious, autonomous spirit. It is a spirit of self-will, it is a spirit of self-preservation, and it is a spirit of self-aggrandizing that was defeated in Gethsemane. When Christ said, facing the cross, Father, not my will be done, but your will be done be done. But as we mentioned last week, in our culture, especially as it pertains to marriage, the word submission is a dirty word. Conjures up ideas of oppression and weakness. But oppression and weakness are nowhere near what God has in mind or in scripture with this concept. Because you see, this concept starts in the very nature of God, the very essence of God in the Trinity, where the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all mutually honor and defer to one another. We see Christ in the Gospels repeatedly deferring to the Father, not only in Gethsemane where he said, thy will be done, even though this is not what I want in the moment. But over and over again, he said, my food is to do the will of the Father. I do only that which the Father tells me. The Son was fully submitted to the Father. What we must realize then as we see submission working in the life of the Trinity is that Christ's submission did not make him less than the Father. That would be to deny doctrinal truth about the Trinity. Remember, all the members of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Ghost, are co-eternal and co-equal. And Christ, willingly surrendering and submitting to the Father, in no way made him less than the Father. We're not talking about less or more. In fact, it was the way that he gave glory to the Father, that the Son was glorified, and that love was made evident to the world. It was through the Son's willing submission to the Father. So in light of the example of the Trinity and Christ and his submission to the Father and the Spirit's submission to Christ, we begin to see very quickly how balking at or shirking the call to be submitted to each other or others in specific is very unbiblical, unscriptural, unchristian, unspiritual. 
But we all struggle with that. But when we do that, we're fighting against the Holy Spirit and we're railing against the image of Christ in us. Now, the call of this whole passage is this. In light of what God has done for you in Christ and by the power of his Holy Spirit at work in you, humble yourselves and be submitted to one another in the fear of Christ. And again now, marriage is just a case study of what mutual submission looks like in a very important relationship. But mutual submission is the backdrop. And what we see in the text is that both parties, husband and wives, are beckoned to be self-sacrificial and Christ-like in the power of the Holy Spirit for the glory of God. And we see that in the two words that dominate the text. The two words that dominate the text are submission and love. When we're done explaining them, though we feel bad about submission now and good about love, we'll actually feel better about submission and a little less better about love when we understand it. Both concepts will push us toward sanctification and holiness and Christ-likeness. Here's how. For husbands, in sacrificial love. For husbands, in sacrificial love. The idea is a love that seeks the best for the other at the cost of self. Begin to listen to me, husbands. A love that seeks the best for the wife at the cost of oneself. For wives, sanctification and holiness in marriage comes through sacrificial submission. The idea is, now listen, wives, submission as voluntarily yielding in love. Voluntarily yielding in love. These callings are according to God-given roles, okay? And the roles in marriage are the parsing out of the idea of mutual submission. It's how it really plays out in the nitty-gritty. And what we must understand about these roles, husband and wife, and the different calls upon them, is that they are functional, not qualitative. That is to say, what is in view here with husband and wife are differing roles, but equal value, okay? Scripture presents man and woman, husband and wife, as being equal in value, but having different roles. But the roles are equal in dignity. It's not that one is better or greater or of different quality than the other. They are different, but of equal value. It's not because one is greater and one is lesser. That goes against Scripture. That goes against creation. That goes against Genesis where it says God created them, man and woman, in his image. Okay? We're both made in the image of God. There is equal value in men, women, husbands, and wives. But there is in marriage different roles. And these roles are for the working of relationship that mirrors the work and the quality of God as being triune and accomplishes his purposes in the world. Again, rooted in the Trinity. What do we see in the Trinity? Full equality, glad submission, joyful intimacy, and mutual deference. And these roles, husbands and wives, are given by God to, listen, lovingly push us toward a place of being more like Jesus. By minimizing self and making much of the other. Minimizing self and making much of the other, okay? 
Take, for example, the role of the husband. Here's where we get down to the nitty-gritty. This is going to hurt. In verse 25, the husband is told to love his wife just as Christ loves the church, having given himself up for her. The call on the husband, the role of the husband is to love his wife just as Christ loved the church. Well, how did Christ love the church? He gave himself up for her. Here is the toughest call and the greatest challenge in the whole passage. People often get, get stuck on the part about wives in this passage and think that to be the greatest challenge, to think that it's somehow demeaning to wives. Well, if those are the lines along which we are thinking, then this is devastating to husbands because a husband is called to death. Not easy death in that you would take a bullet for your wife. Any guy would say that. But that you would live for your wife in a way that truly shows her to be more important. That you would live for your wife and you would live your life in a way that daily surrenders for the good of your wife. That she might have the best possible life. Now this is rooted in the word that's used for love, which is agape. Let's talk about agape love for a moment. C.S. Lewis has a workable definition. Agape love, he says, it's not affectionate feelings, but a steady wish for the loved person's ultimate good. Husbands, love your wives with a steady wish for their ultimate good. It's the idea of making much of another person. Okay? It is love that lives and gives irrespective of rights and never says, but I deserve or I should have or this is my place. It gives irrespective of rights. And it ceaselessly, excuse me, surrenders self for the good of the other. Now, a husband is commanded to love his wife this way. Now, let's think about that. It's a command. Since it is a command, it is not based on feeling. Listen to me now. Commanded to love our wives with agape love. Since it is a command, it is not based and rooted in feeling. It is not connected solely to emotion. God relates the love of the husband to the will. Because feelings and emotions come and go and change over time, don't they? Feelings and emotions need to be cultivated. They need to be guarded. They need to be nurtured. But the will needs to be submitted to God in the power of the Holy Spirit. It's a big difference there. Agape love has to do with the will. It's a God principle with Christ as the example who because of agape love gave himself up for us, for the church at the cross. Now grabbing onto that idea of agape love, wishing and working for the loved person's ultimate good and Christ is a model, men, we realize this, that the pursuit of the wife's ultimate good best life comes at any and all sacrifices to the husband's life and will. Why? Because that is the biblical idea of headship, right? It says there in verse 23 that the husband is the head of the wife as Christ also is the head of the church. Now, how are we to think about headship? Once again, our mind goes to oppression, 
You see that our minds are more culturally formed than biblically formed, but we need to think biblically about it. Here's the idea of headship and marriage. We get it from where it talks about the headship of Christ a few chapters earlier, chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. It says this, God has put all things under the authority of Christ and has made him head over all things for the benefit of the church. Did you get that? Christ is the head for the benefit of the church. And the church is his body. And it is made full and complete by Christ who fills all things everywhere in himself. You see, headship doesn't take from, headship gives to. Headship doesn't deplete, headship makes complete. Headship is not for one's own benefit, headship is for the benefit of the other. Christ is the head of all things and the church for the benefit of the church. In that way, our text says, the husband is the head of the wife for the benefit of the wife. Now, Christ's headship is necessary for the goal in the church and the husband's headship is necessary for the goal in the marriage. And the goal is following now in verses 26 and 27. Look at what the headship of Christ accomplishes for us. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. That he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. You see, her good, the church's good, requires the sacrifice of the head, Christ. And her good, the wife's good, requires the sacrifice of the head, the husband. That's the call of the text. And a woman, a wife, better said, would find it easy to defer to her husband if she knew he would die for her not in word, but in deed, and actually does so daily, demonstrating that, then a husband that she felt felt might sacrifice her to his fears, lusts, and ambition. Let me tell you why submission gets hard for the wife. Because the men sacrifice her well-being to their fears, lusts, and ambition. That's not headship, that's sin. A wife like the church to Christ would rejoice in submission if she knew that her husband was living in a way in which he daily died for her and she knew that she would not be sacrificed on the altar of fear, lust, and ambition. Realizing that the husband's authority is never given to please himself but to serve the interests of the wife, that is what the text is saying. Assuming the role of headship is given by God is done for the purposes of sacrificially ministering to the wife. Warren Wearsby illustrates and says, when Jesus washed the disciples' feet, he taught them that the greatest is the person who uses his authority to build up people and not, like the Pharisees, to build up his own authority and make himself important. By nature... We want to promote ourselves, but the Holy Spirit enables us to submit ourselves. That is the call of the text in the example of Christ. You see, the role of the husband is still subsumed by, has a backdrop in the underpinnings of verse 21, mutual submission. And even as the head, he submits himself, 
his whole being for the wife's well-being. This afternoon, I'll do a wedding. If it's a traditional wedding at all, the groom will be dressed in black. Okay? Traditionally, the groom is dressed in black. And the groom will be positioned at the altar. And the groom will be waiting at the altar dressed in black. And then the wife will come to the end of the aisle and she'll see the groom. Now, now what is intended in that? It is intended that the, the, the wife, the bride, see the groom dressed in black to represent death. And where will the groom be waiting? He'll be waiting at the altar, which is always in Scripture a place of sacrifice. The altar is a place where we go to give and to give up and to surrender for a greater good. It's not where we go to get our needs met. You see, the, the, the wedding ceremony is meant for the groom to be dressed in black because that represents sacrificial death of self. And he's there at the altar. And the wife is to know from the first moment that this man is willing to die for me. And when a wife knows that in obedience to God's word and Christ's motto, her husband loves her with the highest kind of love, love irrespective of rights, love that makes much of her and pursues her good, she feels no resentment over her responsibility to render loyal submission to him. She is glad to voluntarily yield in love to such a man. We begin to see now, as we ought to see, that submission in the Bible is not in any way, shape, or form meant to be demeaning. It rather dignifies. And it gives dignity to love as it did between the son and the father, the son submitting to the father. That is why the analogy is given in the text for the wife of the church. Verse 24, as the church is subject to Christ, okay? As the church is subject to Christ, so also in the same way, the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Meaning this, in that way, in that spirit that the church submits to Christ, the joy of having been deeply loved and tangibly sacrificed for. In that way, the wives are to submit to their husbands. Scripture never represents the church, which is a primary analogy. Scripture never represents the church as being oppressed by Jesus, does it? The church is loved and cherished and nurtured by Jesus. The church is never seen in Scripture begrudgingly submitting to Christ, but rather joyfully in a way that dignifies love, not in a way that robs it of dignity and value. The church finds dignity and value in gladly submitting to the Lord. This text is not a call for wives to be a doormat, nor is it allowance for them to be oppressed. That is not what the text is saying. And what, my, what, what wives must know is that their submission, voluntarily yielding in love, is their worship to Jesus. 
Again, verse 22. Wives, be subject to your husbands as to the Lord. Meaning this willingness to submit is about Jesus, not about your husband. Now that ought to be good news because I know about your husband. I'm just kidding. I don't know anything about him. But this call to submit is a call to worship, just like the call to mutual submission in the fear of Christ. We don't do it because of who one another is. We do it because of who Christ is. This call to submit has everything to do with Jesus and much less to do with who your husband is. It has to do with Jesus and what he has done for you, not least of which what he did for you in Gethsemane where he modeled voluntarily yielding in love. Gethsemane, where the spirit of self-will and self-preservation and self-aggrandizement were humiliated, where strength, listen to me, Gethsemane, where strength was properly defined and rightly displayed, not as power insisting on self, but power yielding to the other in love. Listen to what Carol Mahaney says. She says, the submissive wife, far from being the weak-willed woman our culture portrays, is actually a model of inner strength. By God's grace, she has conquered this opposition within her own heart. It is actually weakness on display when a wife is not submissive. She is only caving into her natural inclination to usurp authority and demand her own way. That doesn't take any effort at all. Submission is not weakness. It is great strength. Dear sisters, who lied to you and said that submission meant weakness or that you were less than? It wasn't the word of God. You are anything but weak when you're submitted to Christ and your husband. Remember that God looked at your husband and said it's not good for him to be alone. And that all in all of creation, no helper was found that was suitable for him. And so because your man wouldn't be okay alone, God made you. As a helper suitable. Now there you go again. You hear the word helper and you hear it with negative connotations. You think it means less than. But can I remind you that in scripture, God is called our helper. Yes, wives, you are a helper. You who know who else is a helper? The Holy Spirit. In Greek in the New Testament, the parakletos, the helper, the one who comes alongside. God looked at Adam and said, it is not good for man to be alone. So he caused a deep sleep to fall upon him and he removed a rib from his side and from that rib he made woman. A helper suitable for him. There is nothing demeaning in the word helper. There's nothing weak about that. When I need help, I don't go to someone weaker than me. I need help from someone of great strength. When we're told that God is our helper. It means he covers us. He cares for us. He strengthens us. He lifts us up. He encourages us. He carries us. He surrounds us and makes us secure. 
And God said, there's no one in all of creation that can do that for the husband other than this wife. You wives, as helpers, cover, care, strengthen, lift up, encourage, carry, surround, and secure. You see, Rocky Balboa could not win a fight unless Adrian was in his corner. Isn't that right? Rocky had no strength to fight unless his helper, Adrian, was in his corner. Women, wives, you must know and believe, you must, that it was never God's intention that you be or see yourself as less than your husband or deserving of oppression. That is not what the Bible says, so stop thinking that. On the contrary, it says that you are worthy of the greatest care and covering and protection and that you are to be cherished. Listen to Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of Ephesians 5, 25 through 27. It says this, Husbands, go all out in your love for your wives, exactly as Christ did for the church. A love marked by giving, not getting. Christ's love makes the church whole. His words evoke her beauty. Everything he does and says is designed to bring the best out of her, dressing her in dazzling white silk, radiant with holiness. And that is how husbands ought to love their wives. So when I do that wedding today, if it's at all traditional, the bride will be dressed in white. Why is that? Because she represents the church who has been made pure and dazzling and beautiful and undefiled and without spot and without blemish by the love of Christ, her head. That's what's going on there. Dear wives, this text is not saying that you're a doormat. It is saying that you are to be treasured and served, loved with agape love. Dear husbands, the text tells us how to approach and begin to think this through this idea of agape love toward our wives, by way of analogy. Look at verse 28. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh. Okay, here's the idea of that analogy. How do we care for our own bodies? Okay, we're to care for our wives like we care for our own bodies. How do we care for our own bodies? Well, we do it without even having to think about it, right? We do it intuitively. We do it purposefully. We instinctively provide comfort for our body whenever we can. With plain common sense, we protect our bodies from harm. Ooh, that's hot. Ooh, that's sharp. Ow, that hurt. With plain common sense, we protect our bodies from harm. How do we love our bodies? We learn to listen to its signals. Where is there pain in my body? How can I address it? How can I remedy it? How can I leave it? How do we love our bodies? We we desire our body's well-being. Nobody wants their body to be unwell. And so when our bodies are exhausted or wounded or famished, we deal with it. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies instinctively, purposefully, continually providing comfort, protecting them from harm, learning to listen to the signals of pain. 
First Peter 3, 7 says, Husbands, dwell with your wives in an understanding way. Learning the signals of their pain. Identifying those places. Pursuing her well-being. Dealing with the wounds, the exhaustion, the hunger. Nourishing and cherishing. Again, verse 29, no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. So again, husbands, our model for that is Christ. Our model for headship is Christ who nourishes and cherishes. Just as Christ also does the church, verse 30, because we are members of his body. There again is the analogy. You see, the Lord views us, the church, as his bride. He loves us, nourishes us, and cherishes us because we are precious to him. Okay, but wait a minute. We are called here in Scripture the precious bride of Christ, the church. There's a problem with that. We know ourselves. We're not really actually precious. We're atrocious. Right? We know our sin. Somehow we're his precious bride. But we know that we are atrocious. But in his love and by his cross, he has not dealt with us according to our faults. But by his blood, he sees us as being, verse 27, glorious and having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but as holy and blameless. So what the text is saying dear brothers, is that husbands are called to deal with our wives not according to their faults and their flaws, but according to agape love. Do they have faults and flaws? They certainly do. But does the Lord deal with you according to your faults and your flaws? What if the Lord were to nitpick you the way you nitpick your wife? He sees them all but he chooses to deal with us according to our salvation and what Christ has done on the cross. And so he deals with us with love and patience and kindness and grace. That is how we're called to deal with our wives. You see, men, you thought the purpose of your marriage was to make you happy, but it has much more to do with making you holy, more like Jesus. To love our wives like Christ loves the church means to love her with a love that covers a multitude of sins, 1 Peter 4.8. This is a high call, especially as the years wear on. It's only possible by the power of the Holy Spirit is what this text is saying. This is what a spirit-filled life looks like. This is not possible apart from the power of the Holy Spirit being continually filled with the Holy Spirit. And then the same goes for you wives. You're to love the husbands with a love that covers a multitude of sins. So listen to me. You are aware of your husband's faults, shortcomings. The issue of submission is not an issue of, is he a good leader or who's the better leader? Dear sisters, please realize this. According to creation, you are the only human that can love that man into being the faithful and fruitful man and leader in the home that Christ intends him to be. Rocky could not win unless he had Adrian in his corner. 
Rocky was far greater with Adrian in his corner than he ever would have been without her. What did Adrian do? She didn't want Rocky to fight. She submitted to Rocky, but she did so joyfully and in a way that strengthened, applauded, and carried. You understand that? There's no one on earth that can strengthen, applaud, and carry the headship, the leadership of your husband in the home like you can, other than the work of the Spirit. Now, the issue comes up frequently. Well, what if the wife is more spiritual than the husband? Well, guess what? That's almost always the case. <laughs> that is almost always the case. So, so the wife thinks, what, what, what am I to do then? I'm, I'm more spiritual than my husband. <laughs> How... How can I look to him as leader? First of all, adjust your expectations. He's called to be your husband, not your pastor. Okay? If you're expecting your husband to be your pastor, you're setting him up for failure. Okay? I'm not going to say any more about that. (laughs) But if there's a situation where the woman is more spiritually mature, or more spiritual whatever, then women, you are the perfect one to help him. Again, roles are assigned by God, not on merit, okay? It's not a question of who's the better leader. If you have great spiritual strength and he's lagging behind, you are perfect to help. Who do we go to for help? Someone who has what we need. Now, I'm just about finished. What we're realizing is we're listening to this. I know what you're thinking. Loyal submission and sacrificial love are not at all easy. But what we must believe is that there's no better way than what God is saying. You see, this is going to be really hard. And and there's going to be so many moments in marriage where, where everything in you is screaming, I must get my way now. Scripture is telling you there's another way. You either believe yourself and the world and culture and the flesh, or you believe the word of God. Our friend and brother John Piper says this, in the home when a husband leads like Christ and a wife responds like the bride of Christ, there is harmony and mutuality that is more beautiful and more satisfying than any pattern of marriage created by man. Biblical headship for the husband is a divine calling to take primary responsibility for Christ-like servant leadership, protection and provision in the home. Biblical submission for the wife is the divine calling to honor and affirm her husband's leadership and help carry it through according to her gifts. This is a way of joy. Now, what we have to say is that these two concepts, loyal submission and agape love, are to exist in a marriage mutually exclusive of one another. That is to say, the wife is not to wait until she is a perfect until she is, excuse me, perfectly agape loved to render loyal submission to her husband. And the husband is not to wait until he is perfectly respected to give himself self-sacrificially in love to his wife. The ideal in the text is that we do these things regardless of what is coming back toward us. Okay, this is where we get down to the nitty-gritty because I know what you've been saying. Oh, yes, Pastor Brent, I love this sermon, but my husband is nothing like that. 
the ideal in the scripture is that we do these things regardless of what is coming back to us. Trusting that as we do, we are working with and in the power of the Holy Spirit, who is always at work in our spouses. Thank you, Jesus. We are deceived about our obedience when we think we would do better in our role if our spouse did better in theirs. I would submit better if he led better. I would lead better if she was more submissive. You are not thinking biblically. You see, the Bible says this, that our obedience is to, for, and about Jesus. It is not contingent upon anyone else. We don't get to say, I didn't obey because of her. I didn't obey because of him. Our obedience is contingent upon Christ and what he has done for us. It is to and for him. And again, he is our model who did not wait for us to do the right thing before he gave himself for us on the cross in submission to the Father, but rather did so while we were sinners and enemies of God. Thank you for that scant applause. (laughs) So when things are going wrong in our marriages, as they do all the time, we stay the course in the call of this text. Here's where I end. Okay, so don't get all fidgety. Look what 1 Peter 3, 1 and 2 says. I'll read it to you. You wives, be submissive to your own husbands. Listen so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Now, what does this mean and what does it not include? It does not include if your husband is endeavoring to lead you into sin. God is not saying in his word when he says submit to them in everything, submit to your husbands when they're trying to cause you to sin. That is not what's in view here, okay? And as I already said, what is not in view here is oppression. This is not license for husbands to oppress. This is not cause for women to see themselves, wives rather, to see themselves as doormats. That is not what is being said. What is being said here in this text that we just read, 1 Peter 3, 1 and 2, is when our, your, excuse me, husbands are not being the men they should be, you win them over by being the woman you should be. The strategy doesn't change and we say, well, now I'm, I'm going I'm to work in them and change them. I'm going to nag them into being the man he ought to be. Does that, does that work? Be submissive to your own husband so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. You cause them to be the men they should be by being the women, the wives, that you should be. Kate does this to me all the time. My wife is in charge of the finances in our home. Okay, she's just much better with money than I am. When money comes our way, my goal is to spend it. Her goal is to save it. I'm not very good at math. I can't even count very high. So I don't even know what I'm spending. She's very good at math and she's very smart. So listen to me. When it comes to finances in our home, I am fully submitted to my wife. 
Don't think that wives submit to your husbands and husbands is ahead over the wife. Nullifies mutual submission. I am fully submitted to my wife when it comes to finances in our home. She has tremendous wisdom with finances. She's more gifted than I am in that area. She's smarter than I am in that area. She should lead in that area in our home as she does in many other areas in our home. Well, what does the headship mean then? When when would she submit to me? You say you're submitted to her in that area. Here's the responsibility of headship. If my wife in leading our family in finances... If I would see, if God would give me wisdom that there's an area where she's endangering her well-being or the well-being of the family, then I have the God-given responsibility to step in and say, that might not be the right thing. And then we talk about it. We dialogue about it. And then she has a God-given responsibility to say, I I see that. Okay, I'll follow you in that. But listen to what my wife says every single time because this happens all the time. (laughs) This happens all the time. I'll step in and I'll say, well, honey, I really think that we ought to buy another Jeep and some more guitars and things like that. (laughs) She says this every time. She says, okay, sweetheart, I see what you're saying. You pray about it. And whatever you decide, I'll trust you. Now, the moment she said you pray about it, I'm ruined. (laughs) It's over for me at that moment. When Kate does that to me, what is she doing? She is doing what every marriage should do. She is causing me to feel the full and wonderful weight of submission. An analogy, if someone comes to you and they put the full weight of their body upon you, what is your instinct? Your instinct is, I'm going to bear up this weight. It's not to flee and let them fall. Suddenly you have a sense of this responsibility, I'm carrying this weight. When she says, sweetheart, you pray about it and I will follow you. She is putting the full weight of the concepts of submission and headship upon me so that it causes me to be a Christ-seeking, Christ-honoring man by the grace and power of the Holy Spirit. You see, yeah, you go, Kate. (laughs) Now, on the other side of that, I'll say this to the men. The moment you have to say to your wife, you need to submit, it's gone wrong. It's gone wrong. Don't say it. Agape, love it. Love her in such a way that it is her joy to submit to your caring, cherishing, honoring love as it is the joy of the church to submit to Christ. Remember, headship is never for your purposes. It's always for the well-being of your wife. And we have to remember this, that there's much more at stake than us. Our marriages are meant to be a picture to the world of the passionate and pure love affair between Jesus and his church. That's the bigger idea at play here. Our marriages are given to be a picture to the world of heaven on earth where the groom and the bride are united in perfect harmony, Christ and the church. We're to to illustrate that to a world that has no idea. You see, our marriages are bigger and more important than just us. 
And again, to ground it in something more important, the reason we fulfill these roles is because of Jesus and what he's done. Christ, though he was equal with the Father, was fully submitted to the Father, wives. Christ, though we were undeserving, gave himself up for us, husbands. And what the example of Christ proves is that God's design works. Satan would say it doesn't. Humanity often says that it won't. They say together in unison, in stereo, don't submit and don't sacrifice, which is exactly what Peter was saying to Christ in Matthew 16 when he told him, no, 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 you can't go to Jerusalem and hang on a cross. And what did Christ say? Get behind me, Satan. And so each of us, husbands and wives, must keep the example of Christ before us. Husbands in sacrificial love and wives in loyal submission. Because there will be many times through the day where everything within us and without us screams, you must demand your own rights and your own way. But that is not what Christ did in Gethsemane. That is not what he did upon the cross. And that is not what we're called to do in marriage. God help us. Lord, we thank you for your word. As challenging and as difficult as it is, we thank you for it. And we feel the weight of the text once again. We feel the weight of it. We feel the weight of it because of what the flesh and culture say. We feel the weight of it because of our own sin. We feel the weight of it because of witness in the glory of God and it being grounded in the Trinity and Christ's work. And so we pray for help from the person of the Holy Spirit. Lord, I know, I, I know that in this room are so many marriages that are in danger. And I, I'm guessing that many have heard this message and it's pushed them into hopelessness. It'll, it'll never be like that for me, they're saying, but that's, that's not what you want them to feel or say or think. So Holy Spirit, come and give hope. There's no marriage that's beyond your power to rescue. There's no man that you can't change. There's no woman that you can't transform. There's no mess we've made that you can't heal and renew and restore by your grace. You raise the dead, Jesus. You can resurrect our marriages. So we're praying for hope according to your word and your spirit. We're praying faith to believe you and trust you. We're praying for grace to persevere. And we ask for power to obey. We trust these things with you. In Jesus' name.